Praise be to God. I'm Brandon. I get to serve as the lead pastor here. And as we're going through Romans, it's such a joy. We're finally in Romans 8. If you've been on the journey, Paul's taken us deep into some dark places. And we get to see a glimmer of light as we really ponder and look at the joy of our spiritual transformation. The work that Christ has begun and is doing in and through us. It's a, it is a joy and delight. And as we are in this day, I got to just sit and reflect and pray and thank the veterans as it is Veterans Weekend. So if there's veterans that have served, are serving, or there's loved ones that are friends, family that are even serving currently and, and they're overseas, we want to invite you to represent them. And so if you are a veteran, if you have served or if you have a loved one that is serving, I want to invite you to stand as we honor and we thank you for serving. I know there's others that are, I think, Thank you. They're here. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you. I know there's others that are veterans that are using their Veterans Day and they're celebrating away. But it is an amazing thing when you think about where we're at today. A quote from G.K. Chesterton says, A true soldier fights not because he hates what's in front of him, but because he loves what is behind him. And I was thinking about that as, as I know veterans and I, and, man, a lot of my friends and even family have served and I'm so grateful to enjoy what we have and, and my heart breaks as I've seen videos and heard, especially World War II vets, mourn over where we are today and their friends, family, brothers in arms have laid their lives down, not for this, but for what it was. And, and it's amazing as the day we're in today where Jews walk the streets and are killed in the United States and are in anxiety and fear because of what we fought in World War II to bring freedom and liberation to them and to Christians. And as I'm reading uh, Bonhoeffer, Eric Metaxas' book on Bonhoeffer, and there's a section about how Hitler politicized and, and took Jesus' name and, and kept his membership in the Catholic Church and told his his crew to, to keep their membership in the church and, and soon they will, they will get the church to be pagan or will destroy it. But we need to look like and act like Christians because we need to get them on our side. So much so he got the endorsement of the Pope, which is why I've shared whether you're Baptist, Presbyterian or Catholic, if you're not following Jesus, be very cautious. If you add anything to or take away, you can put whatever name you want on it. But if it's not Jesus and only Jesus, it's probably going to end up not in a good place. And Hitler got the Pope on his side, and so all the churches bent the knee. Hitler said that Protestant pastors were the weakest and cowardly. They sweat when they're in his presence and being challenged. Not who Paul is talking about, not who Paul is. And, and last week, Paul's like, I'm not doing the thing I want to do, and I, and I do the thing I don't want to do, and I'm not doing the thing I want to do. And this war between us, internally, and we're here again. There's nothing new under the sun. And yet, as we open Romans chapter 8, you're like, wow, Brandon, okay, thanks for the brief downer. I thought we are supposed to celebrate. Well, we're supposed to be heavenly minded, but not so heavenly minded we're no earthly good. We're supposed to know where we're going and do the work of building his kingdom here. And so while we appreciate the work that our soldiers have done and securing peace where they can and, and protect our home, we're not, this isn't our home. 
our eternal places in heaven. And so on Sunday, we want to honor that, but also in the perspective of where's the fight? And it was interesting as I see these World War II vets, they come home and they enjoy it. But the next generation, there's always a fight. And not just physically, it's spiritually. And Paul uses that. Hey, the soldiers, are you in a spiritual battle? Do you know there's a spiritual battle? Because when we look at the world falling apart physically, well, what's the answer? Is it one more war? No, war is just devastating. Everyone loses. But we have to find victory and freedom somewhere. We long for that. We want that. And the only one that says, I'm the Prince of Peace. I'm the King of Kings, Lord of Lords. And I've established, and that's where we get into Romans 8 and we get to have joy. Knowing He changes us. Knowing He's the answer. Knowing that finally people are realizing, for the most part, oh, there's a history in the Middle East that goes back further than just 100 years or however long we've been alive. There's been a history and God called Abram before he was a Jew. He wasn't even a Jew. The founder of Judaism wasn't Jewish. And Jesus came to, to graft in Gentiles and say, no, the whole plan was for the whole world, all tribes and tongues, and God was going to use Abram and the Jewish nation to breathe a blessing. And now we're grafted in to do the work. The problem is Satan is our crafty, defeated foe. And as we celebrate the veterans who served and fought, are we having that same spirit, knowing the freedom that Jesus has accomplished for us, and are we fighting that spiritual battle? And we see in verse 1 of chapter 8, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unless you read chapter 6 and 7, unless you were with us the past couple weeks, that verse, it's a good verse, but it loses the weight when you've been under the weight of 6 and 7 in the law. And so as we open, we have three points we're going to draw from the first 13 verses of chapter 8. We see first, you get a new freedom to know yourself. You get a new freedom to know yourself when we see Christ and we're in Christ. And secondly, you get a new way to think. And thirdly, you get a new power in the Spirit to live. So first off, Romans 7, which we looked at last week, right up to verses 22, 23, and 24, in the end of chapter 7, we see, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but 23, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Verse 24, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then verse 25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. So we continue this theme as we celebrate verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. One is saying that in every one of us we have the capacity to be and do evil. We have the self-centeredness, self-absorption, and we're so concerned about ourselves. And immediately after saying that, Paul is saying, it's true of you, it's true of me, it's true of all of us. But then he turns to verse 1 and says, it's wonderful though because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The word condemnation is a Greek word, katakrima, which means to have judgment against, to be condemned. There's a legal term, it's saying legally you're in debt and you're going to be condemned but if you're in Christ, there is no more katakrima. There is no more judgment. There is no more indebtedness. Your debt's paid. You're legally free. This is saying, though, we're not only capable of wrongdoing, we're, we're, we have the seeds of evil in us, but yet 
we've been set free and we're, we're forgiven. There's no condemnation. The word no is, is too strong a word in, in the Greek to convey with English because English really is not that adequate of a language. When you read it in English, it says there now for the moment or for today or for this afternoon, there's no condemnation. It, it has a sense of almost immediacy and, and temporary. It's not permanent, but in the Greek it says the word no means there is no more condemnation for Christians. No longer exists. It's been destroyed. Never again will it be upon us. Romans 7 is just saying we're capable of tremendous evil. And immediately he says at the same time, simultaneously, if you're in Christ, none of that can ever bring condemnation to you. We see that in Luke 11, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he actually is teaching them about prayer. And he says to his disciples, if you then, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more would your father who loves you give you good gifts? Every time I, I read that, he talks about like giving snakes or rocks instead of a loaf of bread. And I, I kind of want to do that one time. It's like, we're going to in and out and out of the bag. Here's your... Here's your, here's your, your double-double and animal fries, and they open it, and there's just rocks and a snake slithering around in there. It's like kind of funny, but I don't think that they would like that. I've made mistakes similar to that in the past, so I, I laugh at Jesus' humor there, because I'm like, yeah, that would be, but that wouldn't go well. That'd be like years of counseling to, I don't know, every time we went to In-N-Out, everyone else got to eat, and my dad kept giving me bags of rocks. Like, I don't, I couldn't figure it out. How much more is, is God going to give us good gifts? And yet Satan says, the original lie. He doesn't care about you. He wants to steal from you. Why not eat the fruit? God's a jerk. You should eat. Eve's like, yeah, you're right. What a punk. He's probably going to give me rocks when we go in and out. That's it. I'm going by myself. It's like, what? What? Hold on. When did you... Look at everything he did. You think he's going to like have evil? No, he doesn't intend evil for you, but only good. Think about it. He's talking to people he loves, whom he delights in whom he's going to die for, whom he's unconditionally committed to, but he's also saying, can you hear Jesus saying it to you? I love you. I'll never forsake you. I'm unconditionally committed to you. I delight in you. And you're evil. You're so evil. You're so vile. You're so self-centered, self-focused, and I'm going to die for you and set you free. And it's going to be awesome. You're going to live eternally with me. And when we understand that both are there. When you understand six and seven, you, there's no philosophy, no East Western religion, individualistic, pluralistic, cultivistic, liberal, conservative. Nothing can give you that. The liberal mindset that never calls anyone or anything sinful or evil, including yourself, because all problems are really just functions of psychological or sociological dynamics, when you really do something far more cruel or cowardly worse than you thought ever imaginable, you have no category for it. You'll go into denial that there even is a conservative mindset who does use the terms sinful and evil for people and their very identity is based on that. But you think, I'm not one of those people. I have virtues. I'm not like those relativists, those anarchists that are just here, we're going to have laws and that's going to... But I, I have self... I just, self-ownership, I just take pride in that. Virtue, but they're virtuous people. But it's interesting because both categories, whether you're, you're free thinking or you're very, hey, we're gonna be self-reliant, self-willed, 
both create the same problems. When you think about it, we have sociological freedom. What do I mean by that? If you understand this, you can't divide the world anymore into the good guys and the bad guys. Some people say they're the good, and then they're the liberals. And some people say they're the good people, and then they're the fundamentalists or the conservatives. We can't divide the world up like that, because everyone is saying there's good and bad, but if you're a Christian, if you follow Christ, if you have understanding of this, you know the difference between you and the prostitute, you and a murderer, you and a Nazi. The only difference between you and them that the seeds in, in your heart and their heart, their, their seeds just took root. And your seeds took root in a different way. But you all have the seeds to do the same evil. When you realize we're all sinners. So there is no good or bad. We're all bad. The only one that's good is God. That's why Jesus says, hold up, time out. Who are you calling good? Are you really calling me God? Because that's a fun conversation. But I don't think you know what you're talking about. No, you're not. There's only one good and that's God. We're all evil, and that, that's why it's crazy that we're having another war, and people that are young are like, oh, we'll answer, we'll figure it. It's like, hey, if we read the Bible, we understand there's only been a few times in all of world history where there hasn't been wars. And Jesus says there's going to be wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, Mount St. Helens is ready to go again, earthquakes going everywhere, volcanoes erupting, wars and rumors of wars, like all over, all the time. Oh, Jesus is trying to help us understand there's work to do. He told us to take communion every time we gather and go tell the world about him. And then he's coming back. And we know he's coming back and we feel like, man, he's coming sooner. That means we have less time to tell more people about Jesus. And we see God's heart for all the world to know him. And yet Satan's like, oh, if we could divide him up, then we'll hinder him and then we'll stop the gospel. See how that works? As we see we're capable of terrible things, Jesus says, look, I see that in you, but I'm unconditionally committed to you. I love you, and I'm going to die for you, I'm going to save you. When we talk about this idea of calling yourself a sinner, why do we keep talking about sin? Why do we keep talking about our condition that we're in? Because we need to understand how wonderful and unbelievable, unfathomable God's love is for the true condition that we're all in. And when we embrace that gospel, we realize we're saved, we're forgiven, we're redeemed, we're restored, then we want to go share that hope we have. And so as we use this illustration of a, our lives that we're, we put the good things in and we thought, oh, I'll do this good thing and I'll, I won't steal and I, and I won't lie and, and you know what, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go serve at Echo or I'm going to feed people and I'm, I'm not going to kill anyone today. And then and we think we're good, and we're like, man, I'm doing pretty good. But you just feel the weight of it. And you just, man, this is, this is a lot. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to covet. I'm not going to be discontent with God. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have a functional Savior. And, and Jesus is saying, no, I've, I've already taken all of that and removed it. And I've put my spirit in you. So that you look like me, and you talk like me, and you think like me, and you love like me. And we go, that's cool. I, thanks for saving me and doing all that. But you know what? I have this cool thing. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm still going to pack a shoebox. And then I'm going to get to heaven and tell you all about it. And it's like, what? no, that's work. You don't have, you're not saved by your works. No, no, no. That's going to change me. That's going to save me. We, we keep doing that. And he's saying, look, this idea of calling yourself a sinner, that's emotionally unhealthy. 
We're supposed to be free from that, but we need to understand the weight. I want to give you an example. I heard a, a story where there's these, this young couple in the 70s, and they had three kids, and they were in a car, seatbelted, and the car went into a, a lake, and they drowned. And at the, the funeral, the husband and the wife just were mourning, sobbing, but had this just resolute faith and this trust in the Lord. And they on display for the church, and, and they, they had more kids, and, and they were just, man, the grace of the Lord, we know our kids are in heaven, and it was horrible, tragic, and the worst, like the worst that life could throw at you. And they endured in such an amazing and profound way. And years later, a pastor is telling the church about them, and, and he's saying this family just rebuilt and, and built a family and a life, and, and he was a pillar in the church and the community. And, and then years later, he came to the pastor and said, hey, I, I endured this great loss, and, and I was okay. God saved me and, and brought me through that and strengthened me and healed our marriage and our family. We have kids now, but I have this, this just huge temptation and sexual draw to another woman at the, at the church. So he got emotional counseling, spiritual counseling, and he ended up taking his life. And it's so tragic to hear that story because he endured all of the worst things that life could throw at you. And it's a horribly sad story, but I share that because he's a man who could handle the worst suffering that world could give him. But he couldn't handle the possibility that he was a sinner. He couldn't handle the reality that there's a sin seed in him that had somehow taken root. And he didn't realize, oh my goodness, that's me. I'm that evil. I'm that man. And so he, he took his life. When we realize how evil and how depraved and how sinful we are, and God says, I know. I died for that. Look at my hands. Look at the side of my, where the spear pierced my heart. That was for you. That was for all the sin. And there's going to be this war that's waging until I make you perfect. So we, we sin less when we follow Christ, but we're not sinless. That's helpful distinction. Because in the 70s and 80s and even 90s, there was some of this that was leading many like him to kill themselves. Because they're like, I can't be sinless. I can't be perfect. Ah! Which for us, we're like, yeah, idiot. Like, who thinks they're perfect? But that was a big thing. And people taught and pastors preached it. Which I'm like, yeah, I would probably not go to church either. No wonder... We're kind of recover, re, re, rediscovering our faith here. And so this guy's hearing that probably. That I have to not have any sin in my life to be a Christian, yet I have sin or I have temptation to sin. Yeah. Is Jesus' payment not enough? It is. And that's why I want to help us that we have a new freedom to know yourself. That he said, that Jesus says, I'm capable of, ter you're capable of terrible things, but you're unconditionally loved. And that's preaching the gospel to yourself. God made me to have a relationship with him, but I'm capable of evil and terrible things. And I'm tempted to do that. In most things, we can, we can fight or we can resist. But with sexual temptation, we have to run. That's why we have the story of Joseph. Literally, good narrative and a visual. When there's any kind of sexual temptation, the only thing to do, throw the phone out the window, blow up the computer and run. Just get away from it. You can't, it's too powerful. You can't, Play with it. You can't talk about it. You just have to run. The gospel is what frees us to admit who we are. And as the information is revealed to us, 
see the gospel as the only way. Jesus is the only one who has the power to transform. So as we get a freedom to know ourselves, secondly, we get a new way to think. In verses 3, there's another iteration of one of the, the themes in Romans 7 that says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You remember that from last week? God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Do you remember, we, we talked about that last week, and it's interesting to think about how self-centered, self-focused we are. We have this, this mass in us of making our, our lives so much about us, trying to prevent us from being miserable, but because we're self-centered, we end up making our lives miserable. What we usually do is we apply willpower or moral law. We're going to do this and live up to the standard. And, and Paul's pointing out here in summarizing Romans 7, the, that doesn't help you or me because self-centeredness and self-righteousness can make more, t- take on a moral form as well as an immoral form. So the Pharisee and the criminal both equally make a mess of the world. The Pharisee's trying to do all the right things. The criminal's trying to do all the wrong things without any restraint. And both end up living miserable lives. But the answer is in verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're one of those old New King James growing up, you probably saw the word mortify in there. And remember being in Bible college and mortification. What did I, I don't remember that. And the Bible, where's that? And that, like, am I embarrassed about something? Am I embarrassed about my sin? Yeah, of course I'm mortified that I sin. Like, what does this look like? And it's like, put to death? Whoa, how do you put things to death? Like, I want to go kill a deer one day. That's a goal of mine. But how do I put to death my sin? Like, what kind of a gun do I need for that? Or a knife? Or how does this work? Like, I've caught fish before. Is it, and they die pretty quick. Like, that'd be awesome if sin could die that quick. And, and you just spin. But all that to say is mortification we don't use anymore. Because obviously it means you're horrified, mortified. But in the old English, actually a different definition. Again, English fails us. You can just change meanings like... Like you change clothes. So mortification actually means to subdue, control, or put to death. Put in its place. And Paul's talking about that with the flesh. So Paul's talking about the deeds of the body or the deeds of the flesh. He's talking about the whole life being controlled. Not just, not just a thought. He's saying everything in your life, everything in your body does, does everything. It's your whole life. You might be saying, well, how does that, that work? And the heart... In the new method, we see in verse 5 and 6, he's saying recognizing and changing what you mind, what you put your mind on. You put to death the flesh because of what you put your mind on. He's saying, really, we see in verse 13, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. We see verses 5 and 6 echoing 13, and then, then 6 it says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. If you're like me, you're like, what have we been talking about up until this point? And you read that and the Holy Spirit, I'll never forget. Maybe the Holy Spirit's doing it to you right now. But when I read that, I understood all of Romans up to this point. I was like, oh, that's, to set your mind on the flesh is death. That's why every time I'm self-centered, all it is is ruin, pain, heartache. But every time I put my mind on the things of God, it's peaceful and there's life-giving. That's so simple. Like, every time I put my mind on things of the flesh and what I can do, it just brings death. But every time I just realize what God's done for me, in me, through me, it's peaceful. And it brings life. 
Why didn't you say that earlier, Paul? Why did it take you eight chapters? And why am I so old in Bible college reading this? Because I have to for a class in Romans. And it's like, oh, because you're chipping away at all the hard layers, all the rock, all the this, all this stuff. You finally cleared all that away and you could reveal, here's, here's the heart of the gospel. Here's another layer. Let's unpack that. The Bible talks about mind and heart not as two different things like in English, the way of thinking with your mind and reason, and then your heart is what you, your emotions. But the Bible talks about mind and heart as the core of your being. Therefore, Paul says to set your mind on the flesh. He's not just saying, don't think bad thoughts. He's not even talking about thoughts at all. He's asking you to look at yourself and recognize what preoccupies you, what consumes your mind, what captivates you the most. What is your heart occupied in the most? What are you thinking about so often? And you see, when you think about, mm, I'm just gonna think about, I don't know, for me it's like my truck, I gotta fix it, I had a drunk driver crash into it and it's totaled and it's repaired, replaced, what are we gonna do? And all of a sudden I'm like, ah, the flesh. All my mind just jumps into like, what if scenarios? Maybe for you it's okay, I gotta think about future, gotta think about finances, gotta think about repairs, gotta think about improvements, gotta think about jobs. Th and then you're like, hey, I'm, I'm gonna leave work at work, it's gonna be a great idea. And then all of a sudden it's like seven, eight o'clock and all you're thinking about, you're consumed with is work, not your family, not your kids. What is that your flesh is consumed about? Where, where do your thoughts reside? If your dreams could, could happen today, is it for you or is it for God's kingdom? And the beautiful thing is, when our hearts are in tune with God, it's both. Because God says, I'll give you the desires of your heart. And all of a sudden, when you're like, man, I want everyone to know about Jesus. I'm dreaming and thinking about how do I raise up leaders? How do we get people sent on mission trips? Who's the next youth director to help CJ as our youth group's going? How, who's our kids' ministry support? Where's our men's ministry, women's ministry? As everything grows, how are we going to scale this? How are we going to get the gospel of the whole? Oh, that's fun to think about. Because if all that happens, that means God gets the glory and his kingdom's built. Oh, I should be focusing on that and let God just take, take a care of my wheels. That's fine. It's no big deal. What most preoccupies you? At the very core of your thinking, your dreaming, where is it that your heart is leading you? Your mind is consumed by? I can't find another illustration that's as good as chariots of fire. And my wife will tell you it was probably one of the biggest mistakes I ever made in youth ministry. We were on a student leader retreat. And I'm like, I'm not going to teach you on Romans 8. We're going to have a little verse. Set your mind on the things of the the flesh is death, mind on the things of the spirit is life and peace. Look at, look at Chariots of Fire. This is a great story. There's two men, Harold Abrams and Eric Liddell, both runners, both got medals in the 1924 Olympics. And, and I showed the movie. If you've ever seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's, it's like two minutes of action drawn out over three hours. So it's super slow. I obviously, and not thinking through logistically timing with students growing up with like Avengers where you get 300 superheroes, speaking figuratively of course, you get like Superman, Spider-Man, Batman's in there, All, they're going through galaxies, explosions, cars, boom, 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 like ADD overload, and then there's this like running on the beach, like boom, 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 it's like, yeah, that's not, like 10 minutes in, they're like, this is the, stu what are you doing? I'm like, yeah, I think I might have outplayed my youth pastor years, this is not going well. Abort, abort, right? So the picture is so huge, though. And Eric Liddell ended up 
winning the medal, going as a missionary in China, dying in the camp in China, in a detention camp in World War II. And his sister, Jenny, who's portrayed in the movie, she had an interview after the movie came out, and she said, one of the things that bothered me, because there's only one little glimpse in the whole movie, and she says, you know, my brother Eric was a world-class runner and, and sprinter, the 100-yard dash, and so on. And whenever Eric ran, he always ran with his face fixed at the heavens and his mouth wide open, which I can't do without laughing because it's hilarious. You look like an insane person just running, you know, and, and he's really good at running. Like I run and I look horrible. People, even my mom was like, hey, are you okay on the soccer field? Like, do we need to, I'm like, I'm, I feel fine. I don't, I'm trying my best. We was coaching the team yesterday and poor girl was in the goalie and got scored on three times. And she's like, I'm trying my best. Like, I know it's all we can ask. It's rough. We're trying our best, but she, he tries his best and he wins and he's awesome at it. And he and he's like, this is great. And everyone else is like, are you, your face is like to the heavens and your mouth's open. You're just, and he's, and he told her, he says, even though it looked bizarre, he said, Hey, God made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Now compare that to what Harold Abrams said when he was interviewed about why he runs. And he described the 100-yard dash this, this, this way. We said, he said, when the gun goes off, I have 10 seconds to justify my whole purpose for existing. If I can win the race, then there's a purpose for me to live. Pretty empty, pretty void. And Eric's like, God made me fast, and I love to run, and I feel his presence when I run. Here's one guy who's running to praise his Savior, and here's another guy who's running to become his own Savior. That's the whole point. I guess I probably should have, in hindsight, told the students that and then watched some Avengers movie or something. <laughs> Idols never deliver. Because after they won the prize, Eric's like, yeah, that, that was cool. I ran for God. And I got this as a bonus. I'm going to go be a missionary and tell more people about Jesus. But Abram's got the, he got the medal and he's like, and you see it when he got the medal and it just doesn't deliver. Idols never do. It's essentially to put your mind and your heart on something besides Jesus as a functional savior. I hope today you'll realize the Holy Spirit will reveal to you what it is you're trusting and hoping and fixing your mind and heart on as the functional savior. Without that, and I never really understood that when people talked about it. I read it in books. And then I started to see how people, how people acted or reacted after their football games or their baseball teams lost or basketball. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa, you're really, like, you're, you're like really angry about this. Like, you're okay with, with like sex trafficking happening. You're okay with all these horrible atrocities. But man, if the 49ers lose or the Cowboys lose, it's like the next week's off. The, it's like, whoa, hold on. Like, what are we, oh, that's, if, that's crazy. I mean, Matt, what happens if like really bad things happen? Like, are you going to be okay? I'm really concerned about you. It's interesting counseling two guys. One, both of them had similar situations happen to them that, that revealed the functional savior condition. Both lost their jobs, both their bosses and them were kind of in a sketchy deal and it went down bad and, and both were really stalled out for a while, just bummed out like, man, this is a huge pause on my career. Both were in the, in the same field where you're climbing a ladder and you get to the upper management and you can't quite just jump in another 
another environment like that because the top leadership's threatened. And so you got to kind of work your way back up. And one of them, after counsel, realized, you know, I need to forgive him from what happened and move on. And it wasn't much time until he got a new job and it was way better. And he more than made up for the time lost. But the other one, as people came around him and, and gave him sympathy, and when you give sympathy, and, and he's just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. I am the victim. It's their fault. And then he got justified in his, in his unforgiveness. You're trying to help a person. The problem is the more sympathy there showed, and he was showed, he felt justified in how angry he was, and bitterness started to grow, and unforgiveness never, he never was freed from it. See, the gospel says what is functioning in that place of Jesus Christ as your real functional salvation and Savior? What are you looking to justify yourself? He was looking to say, look, he was his fault. My career is my functional Savior. As long as I have my career, as long as I'm successful in my job, then I'm somebody. I'm justifying my existence by my career. The other one was realizing, no, I'm, I'm a horrible sinner. And thankfully, God saved me, and God will provide another job, and I'll forgive. It's okay. Let's move on. But like Harold Abrams and the second guy, they were looking at their careers. They are looking at their efforts and their accomplishments to bring some self-worth. That functional Savior is essentially something besides Jesus functioning as your Savior. Functioning is the one declaring what your identity is and what your worth is. And until you find it, you're going to find things falling apart in your life. It's called death. Until you find out what those functional saviors are, everything's going to keep falling apart until you realize there's nothing and nobody and no way can a functional savior help you. It's only going to hurt you until you surrender and go, Jesus, you're the Prince of Peace. There's victory. And I can fight from the place of victory for victory and for peace in other people's lives. That's God's purpose for you. That's always been his purpose, is to have a relationship with his creation and then to go through the creation out. That's why Jesus said, all right, great. Disciples are made. I paid the debt. I'm going to go prepare a place for you. I'll check in with you guys. I'll be back soon to get you. Go tell the whole world I'm coming back. And every time you gather, remember me. So do the, do the whole bread and cup. Remember my body, my blood. That's kind of a big deal. That was the payment that you're telling people about. So keep focused because you're forgetful people. So when we think about this, we see we have a freedom to know ourselves that's so evil, so capable of evil, having the seeds of evil in us, but yet the new way to think is putting my mind on the things of the Spirit is life and peace. Being reminded of the gospel renews my mind, retunes me into my identity secure in Christ. Therefore, I, I've, no matter what the world brings me, I can, I can have the confidence to face it in the place of victory in Christ. Thirdly, you get a new power in the Spirit to live. Where do we get the power to really make this change or experience this change? And see, down in verse 13, it's also up in verse 5 and 6 that we've been looking at. Verse 13 says, you have to put to death the deeds of the body. You have to destroy and root out your fleshly way of living. That's that other word of mortification. You have to put to death the deeds of the body. You have to put to death those things, which means you're actively at war, which means when it comes up, you don't freak out and go, I'm a horrible person. God's like, I know you're horrible. That's why you needed me. There's no hope on your own. You can't put these things to death. You can't try harder. You can't even love more because every time you love, you're doing it because you're so selfish. You want to get something in return. By minding the things of the Spirit, what does that mean? 
This is where we move away from a pure technique. Now we're not completely in control here. You can't just pick up the Holy Spirit like scissors or a screwdriver and start to use the Holy Spirit when and as needed. What does it mean to mind the things of the Spirit? Don't forget, minding is more than just thinking. It's not a thought. It's your heart and your mind completely consumed and controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's everything about your whole life on and in the Holy Spirit. And every time I, I think about the gospel and I'm teaching the gospel to myself and I'm sitting with the gospel and then I'm watching shows like, it's silly, but the Iron Giant. And you see the Iron Giant with the nuke coming and he takes it and then he blows himself up and it brings a tear to my eyes. And my kids look at me and they're like, Dad, why are you crying over the Iron Giant? I'm like, I'm not, it's Jesus, he died for me. And then the Iron Giant comes back. I'm like, the resurrection! And my kids are like, Dad, we'll do Bible say later. Like, pastor's trying to bring everything about Jesus and make it all about Jesus. I'm like, that's, that's what we're supposed to do. Every time we read scripture, it's this longing and needing and wrestling and trying and failing. And finally Jesus shows up and then they kill him. And he's like, it's all right. I'm going to come back from the dead. Like, don't, don't worry. Get the fish tacos ready. We'll, we'll, we'll meet up. We'll talk to Peter. Get him back on board. And then I'm out. And you just, every time you see that, it pulls your heartstrings. It's like getting that cancer diagnosis. And then also, hey, here's the radiation. The cells have, have gone rogue. The good ones have gone bad. But here's the cure. And every time you go, here's the cure. Here's the evil in my heart. Here's the self-centeredness. And over the silly and somewhat stupid little Iron Giant cartoon, it reveals, oh, there's a little bit of the cure. There's a, there it is. There's the, the self Less sacrifice to save the masses. First Corinthians 1, God uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He uses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He uses even the lowly and despised things, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. You say, well, that, kind of, that kind of is moving for me. And it's those, those parts, the radioactive parts. This is some of the material the Holy Spirit is using to destroy the self-salvation. And you can find it anywhere, in the Iron Giant. And as you preach the gospel to yourself, you're reminded that God, the Creator, by grace, sent His Son, Jesus, into the world. He lived a perfect life, free from sin, died for sinners, rose from the dead, and now offers all who believe eternal life in a special place in the kingdom, living life to the fullest with the power of the Holy Spirit. And when you look at the gospel, that's what we're supposed to be sharing. And so we see the this outreach kind of evangelism temperature gauge in your, in your book and your notes. It's more like a book because it's two pages. It's probably the biggest book I'll ever write. So the evangelistic temperature, you're like, wow, Brandon loves, all of a sudden we're talking about what you're saying on mind on and now we're supposed to go share the gospel. I didn't read that in Romans 8. How did you get that out of this, Brandon? Like you're just trying to tell us what to do and isn't that your job? Why are you delegating this to me? No, it's, it says in God's word that we're all supposed to do the work of the evangelist. Some of you are gifted at it and amazing and you see a lot of fruit consistently. Some of you are a little bit more like, oh, that's, yeah, that's why it's called work. It's not always super enjoyable. Like I got to talk to this person about Jesus. They're going to make fun of me. They might kill you. Yeah, that's what Jesus said. They hated me first and now they're going to hate you. So don't be surprised, but be aware. 
And that's why it breaks my heart to see the Jews go, oh man, they're mad at me. It's like, uh, I think they always have been. Like read Abram, from, from great-great-grandfather Abram all the way through, the world is hated because Satan is in control of the world and he wanted to stop Jesus from being born. He failed. He wanted to stop Jew, Israel from becoming a nation. He, he wanted to get control of Jerusalem. He failed. Jesus is coming back. There's no way to stop that. But until he does, we have time to share. So this is a good gauge. Maybe today over a conversation, are you one, apathy? Are you growing in passion for others who are lost? Are you growing in practice? Are you learning methods? Every time I give you a new tool, are you like, yeah, whatever, that's Brandon's job. I'll, the evangelist got that. I'll, you know, I'll pray for them. Okay, I'll pray for them. Or are you growing? Are you saying, oh, this is a tool, you know? Probably the, one, the new one I learned was, because I don't really talk about pain. I have like two painful points in my whole life that I remember. Everything's blocked out. Maybe you're a person, though, that has a lot of hurt and pain and you've gone through a lot. It's always amazing when we've had these God at work stories where people come up and go, man, what she shared about her pain, that ministered to me. Did you think about that? Way to share the gospel from a place of pain and hurt? How many times did Jesus just walk around and like, hey, I went to a five-year-old's birthday party and we had a pony ride and a thousand people got saved. Awesome. Like, do that when you share the gospel. No. People were blind. People were in the grave. All of it was hurt. All of it was pain. All of it was problems. And Jesus brought the solution. So why do we think we have to have a perfect life to tell people that they're not perfect, but they need a perfect Savior? To... No! All of it was because we're broken and hurt in need of a Savior and capable of evil, and God still loved us, chose us, equipped us, and said, now go love out of your brokenness. Go, go care and share from your hurt and your pain. It's like, oh man, maybe I need to think more about that. But the gospel is what sets us free.